Welcome to Berry Grounds. I'm Justin Brake. Here in Newfoundland and Labrador, there are two things without which we probably wouldn't be here. The sea and the fish. But how much do we really know about them? In an era of offshore oil, mega hydro dams, and now an impending wind energy industry, have we become indifferent to the fisheries? What we do often hear about them just seems so unrelatable. Quotas and metric tons, prices per pound, licensing regulations. How did something so important to our economy and our identity become so hard to understand? Today we're going to speak with two of the province's top journalists. They've teamed up with The Independent to create something that we don't have in Newfoundland and Labrador. An explainer series about the fisheries and the sea. I'm a big fan of their work and I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Jen Thornhill-Verma and Leila Bodwan just a few days ago. Stay where you're too. I'm Jen Thornhill-Verma. I'm a fisheries, oceans, climate change reporter coming to you today from Ottawa, where I live and make my home now. But most of my reporting is on the Northwest Atlantic Ocean and brings me back to my roots in Newfoundland and Labrador. Can you tell us a little bit about your family history in Newfoundland? Uh, your family has a history in the fisheries. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my my grandfather on my paternal side was a fisherman, and he really that side of my family is our connection to fisheries. I grew up in a pulp and paper town, Cornerbrook, but spent summers on the Bureau Peninsula. My father was from Little Bay East, and I think that's where I drew a lot of that fishing culture. And of course, you know, as much as Cornerbrook is a pulp and paper town. I think people know it for that. It's surrounded by fishing communities in the Bay of Islands. So I think, you know, even if you don't necessarily live in a fishing community, you don't have to go far. Um, you know, Newfoundland Labrador is a province of coastal communities. And I think, you know, people made home where the harvest is, and it's very much because of fisheries. So even though we don't necessarily, I think, hear about it as much, uh, in the news, you know, CBC's The Fisheries Broadcast is now the broadcast. Uh, fisheries, the provincial department is now merged with agriculture, but it's just as present today, I think, as it, as it ever was. It's only been a few years. 2019, you published your first book, Cod Collapse, The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland Saltwater Cowboys. Um, what inspired you to begin researching and writing about the fisheries? What, what inspired me had nothing to do with fisheries, I will say. It had, it had to do with reaching a point in my life when I was starting family and wanting my children to be able to know where they came from. But also my father was, uh, he had palliative cancer. And given he was and his brothers were my last links to kind of understanding that fishing history and that, that culture, I felt a real sense of if I don't dig into this story now, then I may not have an opportunity to do so. And interestingly, even though it was, you know, for personal reasons that I dug into the story of the East Coast cod fishery collapse, when I first started writing that book, I imagined I wouldn't be part of the story. And so I reached out to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who were coming of age in 1992. 
So, you know, at a time when it really felt like, I think for all of us who experienced that, even if you were at the, at the coal face of it, but you were in the province, it was this moment where you felt like the province was, you know, coming to terms with its own identity and losing its identity in, in many ways. And so for any of us who were coming of age, I was 12 at the time, it was a confusing period. And I, I think what I came to, to realize was that as I reached out to more people, that in some way, shape, or form, whether or not they had even thought about it, you know, for the last 25 years, it had shaped who they were and why they were doing what they were doing. Um, it was the reason why some people, interestingly, started fishing, um, not just a reason why people stopped fishing. But yeah, it, and so I ended up being a part of the story. The, the book combines my own personal story, but it's also historical nonfiction and, and narrative nonfiction as well. And to me, those are the really, as a journalist, you know, those are the really interesting bits because you, you almost hate to put yourself in the story. But I think it was helpful for the retelling of a story 25 and now 30 years later. Well, I, uh, I'm glad you wrote it and I'm glad that you're, you're sharing your personal story in this way because I think it's so important. There are so many of us who um, have been displaced as Newfoundlanders and I grew up in Ottawa and I lived in other parts of the country, but uh, always had that strong connection with Newfoundland and came back and all the family is here. So I can really relate to that desire to connect and also to make sure that certain traditions um, and knowledge are passed on through generations within the family and also to to ensure that our children are familiar with that and have a connection to that. Um, one more question for you before we uh, introduce Layla here. C-Splainer started about almost a year and a half ago now. And um, Jen, you started that kind of on your own, but it was before my time coming back as editor. Drew Brown was, it was during his tenure as editor at The Independent. Just can you tell us a, a bit about how C-Splainer came to be? Yeah, it came to be because fisheries and oceans are intrinsically tied to lives of people in Newfoundland and Labrador whether they work directly in fishery or not. I mean, there are many communities, hundreds of communities that are dependent on boots and boats and harbors, um, economically, culturally, socially, traditionally. I mean, it's the reason why also people come to visit Newfoundland and Labrador, right? And yet, I did find that a lot of the ways in which fisheries and oceans are discussed are intangible. And I think, you know, I know that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians care deeply about fisheries and oceans and even, you know, climate change. Um, but I didn't see, I, I think, a product or a, an explainer that really started from what their questions genuinely are. So interestingly, the first um, issue in the series, I think, was the one we did about icebergs, whether or not there would be icebergs this particular year, which seems like a crazy question. But the year before that, there hadn't been any icebergs visible from shore. There had been icebergs and there had been more icebergs than there ever had been before. And that's going to continue to be a case because we've got more glacial ice hiving off from Greenland, unfortunately, because of Greenland, uh, because of climate change. Um, but we wanted to really start with the questions that people have. And so, you know, it asked questions like, how many fish are in the sea? Um, we don't always answer the, the question specifically, but we answer it as much as we can. But we try to start from the types of issues that people genuinely are interested in, because I think, you know, evidence, information is for everyone. But I think, you know, a lot of information that's created isn't accessible to everyone. And so 
you know, I think there are some good examples of, of doing that in journalism in, in Newfoundland Labrador over the years, but this was something that I think hadn't been done before. Um, and I will say that Drew was instrumental in making this particular explainer series happen. We were toying with potential names, and at one point we were thinking fish-splained. Sea-splainer's much, much better <laughs> as a title. And then I'll just say in terms of what it is, you know, it's a short product that's meant to be you know, thousand words around there. And it was always intended to be a multimedia product in terms of having data, photos. But we've been able to really, I think, envision what it can be since Layla's joining. So, you know, we had an idea. I think we ran a few issues that I think um, started to show what this could be. And then fortunately, we're able to entice Layla to get involved. Well, that's a good segue then. Layla, it's your turn. Can you start just by uh, telling us your name, where you're speaking to us from, and, and anything else you'd like to share about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Layla Baudouin. I'm a journalist. Spent several years out west um, doing the casual gig with CBC. Spent some time in Canada's north in Yellowknife, which I will say was one of the most nurturing points or parts of my career. Uh, and I think that, you know, because it bears witness to some of the things we just talked about, and that's being close to a place very much revolving around the land. Uh, I didn't just report in Yellowknife, but I spent some time working with the territorial government, flying into places like Toledo, and really working closely in a place where issues that are happening in communities are on the forefront. And, and, and like Jen, that's one thing that I think in Newfoundland and Labrador, we need to prove on when it comes to working on Indigenous issues, fishery issues. Um, after that time, I came back and this is how we're most for Newfoundland and Labrador audience knows me best to work in TV news, um, their supper hour broadcast. Um, and I worked in for, I think, around six years. But during that time, I really fell in love with reporting on the fishery and when I say love I want to be very careful to say it, it was not easy because it's the hardest thing or one of the most difficult things I have to or I've never reported them I think it's because um a lot of the things happening in and around the issue as as we try to um, make more clear through C-Slain are, are systemic you know whether we're talking about you know we out to hear the headlines well there's been quota cuts cuts of group yes or um, personal sharpening this year, but really delving deep into what those issues we for communities. I am currently in Fort Saunders, where I grew up, a fishing village, um, working on something really interesting here, but also freelancing. Um, and being close to the issue, you know, I never dreamed in my career that I would have the opportunity to talk about coastal issues, climate issues, and also get to see my grandma a couple times a week. So it feels very good and full circle for me to be back here. Wonderful. And I should uh, be clear and let the uh, listeners know as well that I'm uh, also on the west coast of the island and I'm in Benoit's Cove, which is also a fishing community. And it is just north of Corner Brook, uh, near where Jen grew up, and I can actually see the mill <laughs> from my living room window. Uh, so that's how close I am to Corner Brook. So I'm kind of immersed in the, in the fishing uh, culture as well. 
However, it is relatively new to me because I didn't grow up here. But I do get a sense, I see every day that uh, the fishery is a big part of, of rural life in the province because I'm watching boats go in and out uh, all day long and even in the evenings. And most of my neighbors uh, are either working, are either fishers or plant workers. And something that you both touched on that really resonates with me. It's been over 20 years that I've been working as a journalist, and it's been uh, well over a decade of that in Newfoundland. And the fisheries has always seemed really daunting to me because what we are exposed to has been really kind of technical jargon and data and stuff about the license areas and as fundamental a part of our economy and our identity as the fisheries are, it's really rare to kind of hear them talked about in everyday language in a way that's easy for newcomers to the issue to understand. So that's why I'm really excited about Seasplainer and the fact that the two of you have come together and that this is an independent project uh, is, is really wonderful. And I, I'm really eager to see where the series takes us. The series launched in March 2022, Jen, when you wrote about the iceberg piece that you mentioned already. Um, then you wrote about the cod stocks, who decides the price of fish and what we've learned from the collapse of the cod fishery 30 years later, 30 years after the moratorium. There's a common thread or threads running through most of the pieces, the impacts of human activity on the oceans and on marine life from overfishing to climate change, you know, most of which is a result of our extracting and burning of fossil fuels. And we are a, a petro province. So there's that contradiction there. What, to your mind, is the most pressing issue? Can we name one thing? Because there are so many intersections when it comes to the fisheries that we need to understand and address as a province uh, that's so dependent on the sea. Ooh, one issue. This is why I designed an entire series, Justin. I was... <laughs> can't, we just, can't we just write one article and be done with it? <laughs> yeah, I, will, I will say it's, it's that I think in, in work covering oceans, and fisheries, you do start to realize how intertwined all of these topics are. I mean, look at, let's, you know, I'll focus on the cod collapse, which I think is just as pressing today as it was 30 years ago. Um, and that's because, you know, we are still in a position where we're dealing with the ghost effects of poor past management. I think everybody would universally agree with that, that there were things leading up to the closure of the East Coast cod fishery that we, we you know, now know in hindsight. But we're also dealing with continued, in many cases, overfishing. And I say that because, you know, from what the science is, is telling us, we are still managing wild fisheries as single stocks. You know, cod independent of its greater environment, its, its predators, its prey, you know, the seals, the, the prey like capelin, um, and also its ecosystem. And so I think, you know, you could argue it's not just the ghost effects of poor past management, which live on for a long time in terms of trying to get to a stage of recovery. It's also continued fishing pressure. And then you're also dealing with the unknown, in many cases, consequences of climate change. And, you know, this is why I think it's important for us to not only speak to the scientists, but really to speak to people who wear boots in the boats, who are out there, who have more time on the water than anyone else because they see it both, you know, above water. The Northwest Atlantic, as an example, is trending stormy. We know that from the climate data, but we also know that from talking to fishermen. And then they also know that when it comes to climate change, that fish stocks are changing as well. And it could be that they're moving further afield, 
that, you know, the population size is changing or that the season is changing too. So I think increasingly, you know, as now it seems like there's a real global interest, like you saw that week where it was like every day outbeat the day before it was like the hottest day on the planet. Similarly, there was a threat about sea surface temperature. I mean, I do think we're at a point right now where the everyday citizen is really concerned about what that means. And I think that, you know, the biggest thing that we can do with Sea Splainer is to help make that accessible, but also to point to where possible points of light. Because, you know, every day you can open up your news and get a bad news story. But this is, again, what I love about talking to both the scientists, interestingly, and fishermen that, you know, you can find those points of light and opportunities for hope. Um, so I think I think we need a good dose of, of both of those. Um, Layla, when you joined the Sea Splainer Project and have been co-authoring these pieces with Jen, you have the benefit of being on the ground in a fishing community. What are you hearing, very generally speaking, about the state of the fisheries and the future of the fisheries? Um, well, that's a big one, Justin. Um, but it's very heavy, right? And and you can look at it in more than one way, but you know, from what they're seeing out on the water to how um management decisions are impacting them. So I'll give you an example. I've talked to some fishers lately who have seen sharks, uh species they haven't seen in other years, um, warming waters. They're questioning what's that gonna mean to lobster next year, as we know lobster was was quite good for fishers on the West Coast this year. Um, and we touched a little bit on this, not our last piece, but the piece before. This is the first time in my career I've talked to fish harvesters so openly about their mental health. So we know that crab fishery was really delayed this year. Um, and you could really feel the emotional weight of that in community because that prolonged time meant sleepless nights. It meant not knowing if the gear and the hundreds of thousands that they've spent into investing into these industries would, you know, see a profit at all. And I remember interviewing uh, one man who said, you know, I'm not sleeping. My anxiety is so bad. Um, this is affecting me in more ways than one. And you see that all over communities. So it's been really emotionally heavy. And it seems more than ever, there's not a whole lot of certainty on what the future looks like for the fishery. And I think Jen's right. We do need a bit of light when reporting on these topics. And what, what gives me hope when it comes to the fishery is the global push we see when it comes to reporting on coastal communities for using and respecting and acknowledging traditional knowledge. That's right. And as you, you mentioned the toll that, that uh, things like delays in the opening of uh, fishery, various fishery seasons can take on fishers themselves and, and on plant workers as well. And we often see this, that the, there's a major power imbalance in the industry. And I really enjoyed... Um, I mean, it's sad. I didn't enjoy that. Two, two, our two sea splainers ago, Layla, you spoke with an acupuncturist, Renee Pilgrim, and she said that she treats people who do not treat their bodies as well as they treat their boats and their lobster traps. And I've had several clients this week with tears where this has come up big time where we're talking about the delay of the fisheries. And she said, when something like this happens, that belief that fishers are not valued is perpetuated. 
Thank you so much for bringing up that quote from Renee Pelgrim, because I think it was in my lifetime one of those beautiful ways to betray something that's really painful in communities, right? It's people embodying taste from decision making, you know, very far away from where they're living and working and feeding their families. So I, I love that quote because it, it put to words something you see and hear and feel but you can't really describe. A lot of the people in my community are tired and worried and frustrated. And with that, you know, I think they want to be heard. And I think that um, there needs to be more work done around um how these decisions were made, you know, Jen very beautifully talks about COD moratorium and her work describing how that affects communities. But we don't really hear much from the people in charge about those decisions and maybe how um, in the future we can better improve how we manage and how we understand the fishery. And I think that starts with time, holding space acknowledging how this has has impacted our communities. And I think that could really go a long way. That quote, you know, it's so interesting. Like, this is a perfect example of where I think we make a great team because I would have never thought that in C. Splainer, we'd be leading with a quote from an acupuncturist. And like, that's the benefit of Layla being in community and seeing how people are feeling and knowing to go to the source site of someone who can say, this isn't one person. Like, this is an anecdotal evidence of one person that this is being felt. And so, you know, I think that's where as much as this is about fisheries and oceans, it's also about culture and community. And that's the thing that I think when you live in Newfoundland Labrador or even when you visit Newfoundland Labrador, I do think that people see that that these are intrinsically tied. Labor issues are going to continue to be a big problem, right? I mean, one of the things that I'm, I see in that example is, and we know, I mean, that population of Atlantic Canada is aging, but this workforce is aging. And you know, any way in which we can profile young people who are choosing to go into this career, which has more risk than ever before financially, you know, on the water from a safety perspective, I think that's important. Gender issues, you know, if we can profile women um, or people who are new to the fishery as well, finding those examples. And just to say that, you know, there has been this this sense of, I think, in in a lot of media about you know, the end is here with the fishery. And we've been sort of saying the end is here with the fishery for our entire existence. But like, it's worth reminding that today fisheries is worth three times more than it was pre moratorium, which we would have thought was the heyday. There are fewer fishermen, there are fewer plants, there's fewer boats in the water, but we're, you know, we are making a, a huge uh, economically income. And then, of course, there's still that social and cultural piece. And I just think the other thing is, is that, you know, we have seen some, I'll call them the beginning of reparations from a federal standpoint. The Fisheries Act in 2019, the same year my book came out, had made two important revisions. One, that the federal government would be responsible for protecting habitat and restoring the health of fish populations. I think Canadians would be amazed to know that that was not part of the MO of the federal government prior to those revisions. And also that um, wherever possible, that in fisheries management decision making, that federal government will connect the dots to indigenous ways of knowing, traditional knowledge and Western science. And, you know, we're not there yet, 
But I see those as, it seems like opportunities to do better because we can't just keep doing the same and expecting different. You know, the COD collapse tells us that and there are countless other examples of it. I think one thing Jen and I share is I feel like we're just getting started. Um, And maybe a quick note to our listeners. Um, Jen and I met when I was working for the Daily News and I interviewed her and I was just like, oh, gosh, love this woman because she was using language like we're hearing today to talk about something that I feel like feel like we're doing something new having these conversations. So I guess, Justin, I feel like it's there's there's a lot. But right now I'm hearing some things about how those shorter work times, you know yourself, if you're scrambling on a deadline, you're cutting corners, you're a little more stressed. So how that's impacting the life of a fish harvester, being out on the water with a shorter timeline, um, how that's impacting them mentally, and how we might be able to improve, I guess, their office at sea. One that's really top of mind for both of us is coastal adaptation. So, because we've started to talk about wild fisheries management and what it means to have climate smart fisheries. This idea of what if fisheries weren't managed based on a single species like cod and, and not only considered you know, everything in COD's environment, but actually what about if we considered all of the human activity? So, you know, you mentioned oil and gas, tourism, shipping. So I think, you know, we want to create more space for climate smart fisheries approaches, but we also want to take it closer to home. Layla's got amazing footage, which we saw in our last Sea Fleeter video of the coastlines that are taking the brunt of these, you know, increasing storms in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean. And you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that there is a coastal adaptation gap. And it's, you know, the areas furthest north, there's also areas globally in the global south that are not prepared. Big cities are becoming prepared, but what are small communities doing to prepare? And they have to do multiple things, right? They have to gain energy independence. They have to think about their reliance on resources like fisheries. And they have to do this all at once. So I think, you know, we know that that's a story that can't be covered in any one issue, but we want to cover over the course of Sea Splainer. I think we're going to continue to see the types of issues we've always seen in fisheries where you have conservation interests and commercial interests butting heads. Aquaculture, we know we want to cover. You know, the south coast of Newfoundland is probably has the greatest amount of aquaculture per capita in Canada. There are um, open pen, you know, uh, farming in aquaculture in Newfoundland Labrador, while those are being closed on the West Coast. And then to your point as well about oil and gas, I mean, you're driving around Newfoundland Labrador, you see bumper stickers that say, I love Newfoundland oil and gas. And I've taken that to mean from talking to people that they love jobs in rural communities. And I think that's going to be a topic that we just continue to come back to because as Layla describes, you know, people setting out trimping or they're setting out now for, you know, the next season in, in fisheries. Ultimately, this is about jobs in rural communities. And I, I think that in Newfoundland Labrador, that continues to be primary voter issue. Um, and naturally, because people, if they want to be able to stay in the places that, that they love in these coastal regions, that very often they're going to be tied up in some way, shape or form with fisheries or, or oceans uh, and natural resources. 
Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you both produce next and in the coming months and, and hopefully years. I feel very grateful and honored to be working with both of you and to be, you know, a, a part of this project as an editor and publishing it on the Independence website. That's it for episode nine of Berry Grounds. If you're as inspired as I am by Jen and Layla's work and want to support the Independence fisheries coverage, including Seasplainer, head to our website, theindependent.ca, and click the pink button at the top of the page that says, Become an Ally. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter by visiting our site and looking for the black sign-up box. Berry Grounds is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Justin Brake, and is part of the Harbinger Media Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.